How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a time of one good scare. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys telling you everything you need to know in the most natural way possible about your favorite (laughs) movies and the people who made them. So that next time you're in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. And I'm another host, Justin Bishop. And I'm writer-comedian Mr. Todd A. Davis. Thank you for joining us for our first episode covering the career of filmmaker David Fincher and the Aliens movies that never were. Just remember, in development hell, no one can hear your screenplay. I like that one. Yeah, it's all right. (laughs) (laughs) I gave you props, Todd. Thank you. (laughs) I'm I'm just trying to get him to... If I if I just dog on his work, then it's just going to motivate him to be even better. So even if he's doing well, the next time he's going to try to up his game, you see? Listen. I see. Comedians really can't have people being too supportive of them. Otherwise, <laughs> their work just goes to shit. So we, exactly, we need Exactly. That. We you got to get brought down to earth every now and then. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, it has been a while folks, but welcome to a new full-fledged series here on Cinema Shock, uh, where we are going to be diving into the career of one of our favorite directors. We haven't done this since John Waters back in like October, I think it was, when those episodes were coming out. So uh, for this one, the director that we're, that we're going to be talking about for the next seven episodes is one of the most meticulous and daring directors that we have covered on the show so far, not to mention one of the most successful with a filmography filled with box office juggernauts and whose work has been nominated for multiple Golden Globes and Academy Awards. But he didn't get to the A-list without working for it. His feature film career started off, yeah, let's say kind of rough. And he's had some films that were maybe not as appreciated upon release as they've become as the years have gone by. For this series, we will be discussing the career of Mr. David Fincher in a series that we're calling David Fincher, The Rules of the Game. We will, of course, be starting things off with Fincher's first film, Alien 3, but you know, as we started working on this series, we realized that before we get to the actual production of Fincher's Alien 3, there is a lot of background information on both Fincher's career and on the multiple versions of Alien 3 that never made it to the finish line, so we'll actually be discussing the story of Alien 3's production in full on our next episode, while this week we're going to discuss kind of everything that led up to it. Now, I will say, before we get into all of this, I want to remind our listeners that if you really want the full story on the Alien franchise so far, uh, we do recommend going back and listening to our episodes on Ridley Scott's Alien and on James Cameron's Aliens, because we're going to talk about uh, a bit of the history of those films here where appropriate, but obviously we can't touch on 
every detail or we'll be sitting here for, you know, six hours. But the stories of those two movies really do tie heavily into the story of Alien 3 for obvious reasons. If you want to feel like you're sitting here with us for six hours talking about aliens, though, yeah, go back and listen to those episodes. It would be like your whole freaking day. It was, Well, yeah. I mean, I, uh, I, I actually released... Uh, the Cinema Shock Rewind episodes and threw them back up on the feed. So they're 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 right before this episode for your convenience if you do want to listen to them. Uh, and I did edit Alien the first one back into a single episode instead of two uh, smaller episodes because we were we were naive back then. We thought that our episodes could all be like an hour, hour and a half. And you know now that we know that that is just not. It's impossible. reasonable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, I just went, I, I put them together and it was like two hours and 46 minutes, which is a long episode. Not for us. No, yeah, it's normal. <laughs> <laughs> so both of those previous alien films were produced by Brandywine Productions, which is a production company that was founded in the late 1960s by Walter Hill, David Geiler, and Gordon Carroll, with Alien being their first real success. Then the second movie in the franchise, James Cameron's Aliens, it had taken years to develop for a variety of reasons, including a couple of lawsuits. But when it was finally released in 1986, it was a smash hit, both critically and commercially, bringing in somewhere around $180 million on a budget of like $18 million. Wow. So naturally, with that kind of success, 20th Century Fox, who had released the film, wanted to start developing further sequels. But Brandywine wasn't totally enthusiastic about the idea of another Alien film because they didn't want to repeat what they'd done in parts one and two, which I think is pretty admirable and somewhat ironic because most producers and studios are, are really happy to cash in on an existing IP because it's easy money. But also, con you have to consider that after this, Brandywine pretty much exclusively produced alien sequels from here on out. I guess after a certain point, they're like, you know what? Who cares if we're just doing the same thing over and over? Yeah. This is a cash cow, so we're going to keep doing it. Yeah, look up Brandywine Productions on Wikipedia or wherever and look at a list of their credits, and it's all alien movies or alien versus predator or whatever, like everything they do. That's just what they make their money on now. <laughs> but at the time, I guess they were a little more precious about it. So they, they said, you know, if we're going to move forward with a third alien movie, then we want a good reason to do so. They wanted to make sure that there was a story there that was worth telling. So then the question became, if we're going to make a third alien movie, then what the hell is it going to be about? I feel like, I guess I get being precious about it, but also I just like the movie because of Xenomorphs. So I think Xenomorphs, Aliens, my initial thought would be like, it's tough to go wrong unless, unless well, you're Ridley Scott and Justin <laughs> hates everything you do, then you could go wrong. Uh, I'm actually a fan of a lot of Ridley Scott stuff, just not a lot of his alien stuff post-1970s. Uh, but uh, there's a lot that can go wrong with a xenomorph in a movie. I think we've, I think there have been several movies that have proven that, uh, including maybe the one that we're talking about this week and next week, <laughs> for being honest. <laughs> so there were a few ideas for this being thrown around, some more interesting than others, but all of them were very, uh, certainly very unlike the first two films. One of the very early pitches would have seen the xenomorphs invading Earth and fusing together into a giant kaiju that would try to destroy New York, which honestly sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, and, oh, terrible, cool. terrible, but but awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another would have featured Ripley and Newt chasing a xenomorph through an off-world city that was described as similar to the city space scene in um, in Blade Runner. 
So that could have been kind of cool, right? Yeah. But see, yeah, I'm saying I've already sold. We got two sequels right now. <laughs> Both of these concepts were abandoned uh, before the producers ever even hired a writer. Like I said, these were just early pitches. But one concept that Hill, Geiler, and Carroll wanted to explore was that of the duplicity of the Wayland yutani Corporation and why they wanted to use the xenomorphs as biological weapons. Because we're kind of that's kind of revealed in you know aliens, but it's never really explored as to why. Like, what are their intentions? So what their idea was to figure out, you know, make a movie about why they wanted to study these and reproduce them to begin with. Well, what they came up with was the idea that a faction of militant socialists had broken off from the rest of humanity and that these space commies, that's a, that's a Walter Hill term, the space commies, <laughs> would be the perfect foil to the aggressively capitalist company with the two sides developing weapons to fight the other. Uh, which was, of course, a clear analogy for the then ongoing Cold War. Well, so you already have two sequels, so that sounds like Alien 5 for me. <laughs> <laughs> so they discussed several concepts related to this idea, eventually deciding to turn this into a two-part story, a third and a fourth Alien film, with Michael Bean's character Hicks as the main protagonist of the third film, and Sigourney Weaver's Ripley, who is in a coma during the story, only appearing in a cameo before returning as a lead character in the fourth film, uh, which was what? being described as an epic battle with alien warriors mass-produced by the expatriated Earthlings. I just It just hit me now, though. What are the chances that the cameo would still have to be her in a tank top and her underwear? <laughs> I mean, most likely, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like the shot they gotta have. Yep. Right, exactly. <laughs> Well, one of the reasons that Weaver's role was reduced to a cameo was because Weaver wasn't fully committed to doing a third Alien film, worried that tying the franchise to her character could bog it down. And she was also somewhat upset with Fox about cutting some of her scenes in Aliens that would have expanded on her character's backstory, something that, of course, was later rectified with the release of James Cameron's director's cut. But, you know, if you've seen Aliens or the director's cut, you know that there's a lot of scenes about... They kind of paint her as a... Well, they... they say that she's a mother that she's lost she lost a child during the time that she was in cryo sleep mm -hmm. you know and that was a big thing that that was important to Sigourney Weaver and all of that got cut out of the, out of the theatrical cut uh, as a, as well as some stuff relating to like her and Newt's relationship in the film which kind of solidifies her as a mother figure things like that uh, Sigourney Weaver loved all that all that stuff so she was kind of annoyed that Fox had cut it out of the, the final product it makes sense she's just trying to give like I mean if she's going to keep playing the same character over and over again she should she should want that that character has depth, I would imagine. Yeah, of course. So. Yeah. So 20th Century Fox, they were a little skeptical about the idea of green lighting two sequels, but they agreed to finance the development of the story with the condition that Brandywine at least try to get Ridley Scott to come back and direct Alien 3. And then they also wanted the two films to be shot back to back to cut down on production costs, which is something that what you know, you see that a lot more now, but not necessarily at the time. Mm. Although um I know Back to the Future 2 and 3 were done that way, yep. but I, I don't know of any other examples from this time, like from before this. I, I can't think of any others. I don't know that there were enough big productions like that to even warrant something of that size. I mean, there were definitely sequels. I mean, there were, oh, there yeah, were there's franchises sequels. that went on, you know, like, I mean, Star Wars, but there were three years in between each of those. Yeah, and yeah. then, you know, you had like RoboCop, I guess, would have been right around this time. But yeah, there wasn't really anything 
And then it really didn't happen much again until probably the Matrix sequels. I can't think of any in between if Back you, to the Future and the Matrix. If you told me that maybe the original Superman movies had been done that way, I could be like, oh, okay. But I don't think that's the case. I don't think they were. Yeah. Actually, yeah, I was going to say, did they not do one and two that way or something like that? I Superman? don't think so. I mean, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, oh, and okay. two and three were different directors, so they definitely were not. Done it, done yeah, it. I was I was thinking for some reason they had wanted to. Now that you were saying it, maybe I don't know. I don't, we'll get to it on the daughter series someday. Yeah, one day. Well, we've already done Lethal Weapon, so the Richard Daughter series is going to have a weird gap. In it we, <laughs> oh, you're right. You're right. What? We'll, we well, got to figure out some way to do Superman. By God, um, <laughs> we'll figure it out. We'll just do. We'll just do Superman movies. We'll just do the whole Superman franchise one day, uh, including yeah, Quest yeah. for I Peace. Mean, you know, which I'm the, still the hoping movie that destroyed Canon Films. <laughs> I still am hoping for the eventual Jaw series too. So you know, oh man, I'm down. I will watch all of those movies, and and then all of <laughs> they, the like, and then all of the Jaws like ripoffs, like Cruel Jaws, and <laughs> what's the, what's the blood? Some oh, shit. I can't remember. Deep Deep Blood is that the name of it? Anyway, there's a lot of them. Oh, yeah. Orca. Yeah, I was gonna say. And then you can watch like Grizzly, which is literally Jaws, but yeah, just with the grizzly with a bear. bear. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. we're up. Where were we at? Oh yeah, Ridley <laughs> what are we talking about again? <laughs> so they contacted Ridley Scott, and he did show some interest in returning to the Alien universe, but he had a, some different ideas about the story that he wanted to tell. His idea was to set the film on an alien homeworld, expanding on the mythology of the xenomorph species and their origins, a concept that he would later explore with uh, mixed results in Prometheus. Uh, Scott, <laughs> so I'm, I'm not, it's gonna, one day we're going to cover Prometheus, and it's going to be one of those screenings that I watch it, and I'm like, finally, I finally see the light, and you know, I like love it. Like, that's what happened with Blade Runner, though. I used to hate Blade Runner. Yeah. It was boring to me, and now I think it's like a masterpiece. You know, so uh, who, who yeah. knows? So really, Scott, though, he, he was too busy to commit to the project, as he was already developing Black Rain and Thelma and Louise, uh, which forced the production. They couldn't really wait on him. They had to move on without him. Although, he could have just shifted to Thelma and Louise versus Aliens. That which would have been that would have been a great sequel, except for the ending of Thelma and Louise doesn't really lend itself to sequels. Although I feel like but let's what if just keep going could have been said by Hicks. Let's just keep <laughs> going, man. That ending happens because there's the one last egg. It's just kind of the way Alien Three actually ends. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. What Thelma is pregnant with the alien? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> right. They've got to just drive off the cliff and it hatch. It like burst out of her, like right as they're falling off the Grand Canyon or whatever. Oh my god! I'm actually no. I'm I've come back around. I'm on board with this idea. Actually. <laughs> Uh, so in September of 1987, Guyler and Hill approached legendary cyberpunk author William Gibson to write a script. The producers were concerned about an impending writer's union strike at the time, so they asked Gibson to get a script to them, like a first draft to them, by December. So he had, what's that, three months. He had three months to get a, a first draft of a script to them. And by the way, William Gibson has never written a screenplay in his life. At this point, oh. uh, has no has no experience writing for movies at all. Jeez. Great writer. It's the best way to learn. <laughs> so uh, Gibson drew heavily on the Guyler and Hill treatment, uh, that idea that we talked about earlier with the space commies. And his story picked up immediately after Aliens with Ripley, Newt, Hicks and Bishop. Well, you know, half of Bishop still in cryosleep aboard the Sulaco. The vessel's navigation system kind of malfunctions, sends them to a part of space claimed by the space commies, which Gibson calls the Union of Progressive Peoples, or the UPP. And then members of the UPP board the ship 
and are attacked by an alien facehugger hiding in Bishop's artificial entrails. So after destroying the facehugger, the UPP takes Bishop with them for further study. After this, the Sulaco docks at a space station called Anchor Point, where Hicks begins exploring and eventually makes the discovery that Wayland yutani are developing an alien army. And to remember, during all of this, like, Ripley's still in a coma, so that's why she's not factoring into many of these plot points. Ah. I was just noticing that I was wondering if you were going to stick with space commies the whole entire time, but you've, you've gone to UPP now. Yeah. I, I like, I like the, the, I like the UPP, you know, you know, UPP, you know me. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad somebody picked that up. I, no, cause I was going to leave that for Gary. I was like, no, nah, that's, that's a Gary. That's a Gary. Uh, eventually anchor point, and the UPP stations are overrun with aliens, and Hicks has to team up with the survivors to destroy them. And then the script ends with a teaser for a fourth movie where Bishop, who has now been repaired, uh, tells Hicks that humans are united against a common enemy, and now they need to track the aliens to their source and destroy them, which opens up the possibilities to set the fourth film on the alien planet. It it's turns into Starship Troopers. Yeah, that's what happens. (laughs) Which would be cool, honestly. And this screenplay, much like the one for Cameron's film, was very like action oriented and you know, over the years, it's really attracted a cult following on the internet because the idea of William Gibson writing an alien story is cool. Mm. You know, like that, what a cool story. So obviously that's going to pique people's interest and they hunt it down and people read the script and all that. And then in 2018, this leads to the screenplay being adapted into a comic book series by Dark Horse Comics. And then in 2019, an audio drama based on the screenplay was produced by Audible, which saw both Michael Bean and Lance Hendrickson return to voice their characters. Uh, Except the, way it, older. Except way older. They, they both, that's the thing. You've li- you listen to this, right, Gary? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a fun listen. It's only like a two a little like two and a half hours, probably. Not really an audio book. I it's an audio drama because there's like music and sound effects and all kinds of stuff. It's like a radio show, mm. essentially. Based on it's this like Orson screenplay. Welles put this one on for right. Years. Yeah, yeah. And and Michael Bean and Lance Hendrickson both sound uh, considerably more gravelly. Which is saying something in the case of Lance Hendrickson, who who's had been gravelly voice since the womb, you know, but but they both sound a lot older, but it's still kind of cool. Whoever's playing Ripley in that, like, I thought it was Sigourney Weaver at first because it sounds so much like her. It's it's kind of like mind blowing. Wow. She she got me like with the first line or so, like I was like, hmm, I can tell this is different. But then it starts where they're kind of repeating aliens. Yeah. to like lead into this and she starts saying some of those lines and it's like okay wait a minute she's definitely like got it down she's got like the cadence and the mm-hmm. everything it's like she, perfect, she does a, so. she does a great job uh did you listen to this at all todd no i uh i wanted to save i wanted to save it for for afterwards because uh, i mean uh, to jump you, oh, you yeah, that'll, that'll lead a lot to the discussion yeah 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 <laughs> Well, the thing is, is we're about I'm, to spoil the whole damn thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, the the thing is, is you mentioned the comic book, and I was like, oh, I I do have that comic book. I remember having it, and and uh, you know, and going over it, uh, you know, some time ago. And then I was just like, before we started recording, I was like, oh, let me pull it up and you know, scroll through it and just kind of refresh my memory. And I was like, oh, I haven't read this. <laughs> I'm the idiot oh, who geez. bought. I'm the idiot <laughs> who bought it and didn't read it. <laughs> Yeah, and then you've known that we're recording an episode yeah, where we're going to yeah. discuss it yeah. in the last three weeks, mm-hmm. and you haven't bothered to crack it open. Nope, nope. Cool. Yeah, no, why Why uh, would I, Justin? Because I've read it already. <laughs> <laughs> 
the uh i'm going back to their voices though yeah lance hendrickson is noticeably older but you're like he's old he's an older guy but michael being yeah. god bless him he he caught me off guard like when he first jumps in there because he's got kind of a cool voice like in all the movies like yeah oh ripley what are we gonna do we gotta get out there and handle this but then when he comes in on the audio drama it's very much he's gotten the like I'm Corporal Hicks. <laughs> it's like, it's like real old man voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, Mr. Bean, you Mr. Old. Bean, Mr. Bean, you need some, you need to drink some honey and some hot tea yep. or something before you record. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, is it's a, it's a, I, I will talk more about the story of the screenplay in a second, but at the time, you know, when they, uh, he, William Gibson turned it in, the producers were not fully satisfied with the screenplay. So they asked Gibson to submit a second draft, which he did in January of 1988. This new version changes things here and there, fleshing out some of the characters and oddly enough, dialing back the action a little bit, but the overall story beats were the same. But then that WGA strike that the producers had feared, it did come it began in march of that year and lasted until august by that time by august fox had approached director rennie harlan about directing the film based on his work on a nightmare on elm street part four which had become the highest grossing entry in the franchise so far harlan liked the idea of going in a completely different direction from the first two films showing interest in visiting the alien homeworld or even having the aliens invade earth and he would later explain there's a, a quote from Harlan. He says, we would place the story on the planet that they really originate from and really explain what they are. And maybe, maybe they are not born to be bad at all, <laughs> which is so dumb. Like the idea of the Xenomorphs being misunderstood. <laughs> well, I was like, what is he trying to say here? I don't what, know. <laughs> what is morality in like the Xenomorph for? I mean, are they like, they're really bad? They're, right, yeah, they're, yeah, they're just trying to survive. They're yeah, like, they're not like... I know the way that the xenomorphs have always been portrayed, they're not like, it's not like the predator. Like the predator is an intelligent human being or not human being, but an intelligent being, you know, who thinks and and is logical like a human. Whereas an alien, part of what's scary about the xenomorph is that they are animals yeah, and they don't need motivation for coming after you other than they want to kill and eat you and reproduce. That's their whole goal you know his his uh his pitch kind of it sounds very star trek of like we can we can make friends and, and establish peace and maybe set up a base yeah but <laughs> that's not what we want out of an alien no no it's right not. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean I, don't, I got no like personal issue with Rennie harlan or anything i mean nightmare on elm street 4 is not my favorite one it's uh, not the worst one. It's not the worst one. You're right. <laughs> and, and, so, and, and it's got some cool and, kills in it. I, I yeah. don't doubt that he can handle the movie. But. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Rennie Harlan is a, a workman director, and some of his movies are good and some are not. Like Die Hard 2 kind of sucks. Long Kiss Goodnight is great. Cliffhanger is an absolute banger masterpiece of 90s action, in my opinion. Cutthroat Island, uh, you know, not great. Yeah. So he's he's hit. Never saw it. I only ever heard how bad it was. It destroyed an entire film studio. (laughs) Yeah, it was like it was like newsworthy. It was like how awful it was. Apparently, anyway, that's another movie. But I guess that's for the Rennie Harlan series. Yeah, or that'll be a roulette episode, maybe one day. Cutthroat Island. (laughs) So, (laughs) so Gibson was asked to work with Harlan on rewriting the script, but Gibson wasn't interested at this point. He was kind of tired of being jerked around by Alien 3's producers, becoming the first of many creatives who were attached to the film who would become frustrated with how the property was being handled. Guiler later explained that, quote, 
What we expected from Gibson was that we were going to get fabulous ideas, but the script would be a mess and we'd have to sort it out and fix it. What we got was a perfectly executed script that wasn't all that interesting. So essentially what he's saying is that the producers told Gibson that they were hiring him as a screenwriter when all they really wanted him for was to pitch a bunch of crazy ideas, which is frustrating and honestly dishonest. So you can understand why Gibson was ready to walk away from this. Oh, yeah. He'd spent a year pouring all of his creative energy into a project for producers who weren't being forthcoming with him. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, I would walk away too. I mean, he got paid for it, you know, so, but he didn't want to continue. And on this like roller coaster, he didn't want to continue being jerked around by these guys. It sounds shitty and it sounds shitty for like (laughs) on a few levels, but like, I mean, it sounds like, I don't know. I'm, I'm hearing that. And I'm a, I'm disagreeing with it, honestly, because I like a lot of what William Gibson was doing with the Alien franchise. B, it just sounds like you're being shitty for no reason there. That sounds like an awful thing to say. Also, if that's accurate, if that's really how you felt about it, perfectly executed script that wasn't interesting, I don't think they would have found the original Alien interesting. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's well, good, that's they wrote point. It. I mean, Walter, <laughs> he wrote Alien, so I think he probably yeah. would have found it interesting. <laughs> I think know- that was all Dan O'Bannon. Well, I mean, Dan O'Bannon came up with it. Go back and listen to our own episode, Gary. I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> did you know that William Gibson was born here in South Carolina? What? I did not know that. Yeah, he was born in Conway, which is down kind of um, the coast above Myrtle Beach, like in that area. Oh, okay. Yeah, Conway, South Carolina. William Gibson, South Carolina guy. Thanks. How about that? Is the it father uh, of Robert Punk. Jordan from? Is it Robert Jordan from here? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I think so. Because a bunch of his, uh, this is off topic, but a bunch of, I remember after he uh, passed away, a bunch of his personal effects got donated to the Mr. K's <laughs> down the road. And they were selling Charleston, a bunch of his, yes. they were selling a bunch of his like personal collection of books there. They weren't books that he I wrote. Was just, they were just like stuff in his library. It was what he used for like research for some of the right. Wheel of Time stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. I was developing a th- theory like in the middle of the episode that maybe South Carolina that you just are wishing for something else so much better. more that you something create better. huge <laughs> fantasy worlds you got grady grady hendrix is doing it you know like i mean he moved to new york a long time ago but it's another charleston guy anyway we're off topic again this is this keeps happening, <laughs> um, happening? so well while most of gibson's script was thrown to the wayside there was One concept that he introduced to the overall alien mythos that made it to the final version of the film, and that's of xenomorphs that are produced by animals. Because remember, all we've seen so far is xenomorphs reproduced uh, by by humans. Gibson's first Alien 3 draft featured an artificial jungle at Anchor Point, which contained primates. Uh, And as the station is overrun by aliens, some of the primates are infested by the xenomorphs. It's a small moment in the script but it's a concept w- that would be picked up by other writers down the line. I do wish we had seen alien monkeys, I'll be honest, uh, in the final awesome. film. Uh, that would have been great, but we didn't. So, Gary, uh, having – Todd, I guess you're not part of this conversation <laughs> since you didn't read your, your comic book. But, Gary, what did you think of uh, – since you've, you listened to the audio drama, how do you think it would have worked as a feature film? Honestly, it seemed a lot of fun to me, and not just because I do for, – for me making fun of them for being old, which happens to us all – uh, I love Michael Bean and Lance Henriksen, so I love the idea of them still being around. I think they're two of the best things that happened for Aliens. I mean, mm-hmm. not that that movie was bad or anything, but like just having two more cool characters is yeah. always a plus. I hated that for Alien 3 that we don't get them, but we'll get yeah. there anyway. And, and it seemed like clearly to me that that 
Gibson, who a great mind helped make cyberpunk a thing. And he seems like he's clearly a fan of Ridley Scott. He like leans more into what alien was rather than aliens. I think, well, I I take that back because in the first draft of his script, and I'll probably mix these up in my head, but in the first draft of his script, there does seem to be a lot more insanity going on but like the second draft it's more lessened like the the amount of characters and what's going on yeah, and everything yeah. it's more alien than aliens but but I, I think that he added a lot to like of cool concepts to the mythology or the mythos as justin called it earlier mm. or just the universe's like lore in general yeah um because I, I I love I love the idea of like a good creature feature, and I, but I I do love that you learn more about the different factions in the universe and that they're both kind of shitty. They develop they're developing right. weapons and all of this stuff, and that the xenomorphs are really weapons developed by some other species, which is something that Ridley Scott wanted to explore anyway. Yeah, I I think that like Gibson does introduce a lot of very interesting elements to like you said to the universe of of the xenomorphs and to alien i do think that at least based on that audio drama that he takes a little bit too long to get to the like alien stuff so i i think like you know they said he had a lot of great ideas but the script wasn't all that interesting i think uh the story is interesting but it takes a little bit there's a lot of there's a lot of setup for what is essentially a sequel because by the third film in a franchise you don't need to be teasing the aliens we've seen them in in all their glory, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I think he I think he does take a little bit too long to get to the actual alien action part of it. That's fair because yeah, that some of the stuff I think is cool for the lore. Would you, you're right? You do need to have the alien action going on. Maybe um, needed a was, couple of set pieces early on or something like that to kind of like break it up a little bit. Yeah, I was sitting here thinking about just the different costs. Like, even just now, just it came to me, like, how there's the thing about the bug hunt. Like, they're talking about we're going to go on mm-hmm. a bug hunt. But that's yeah. like the Marines are known for, like, going to planets and removing, quote, redundant species from planets yeah. to make room for colonists and stuff. I was like, wow, this has got some big ideas. Like, some yeah, for sure. Interesting concepts. But also, uh, just for the creatures themselves, like, that the alien thing becomes kind of like, a virus that it can be yeah. airborne and which uh, is really a really cool concept yeah yeah and, and, yeah yeah or that you could like turn into one like it basically like the one like rips their skin off or whatever yeah like, there's basically water. uh his script introduces like a an alien human hybrid mm. uh which yeah. we will see i guess in full in resurrection right yeah in yeah. resurrection <laughs> yeah. it comes back around it almost yeah. feels like in this one like the thing a little mm, bit. Yeah, like yeah, I, yeah, you're absolutely right, because you never know if somebody could be infected. So it is very much like the thing in that way. Yeah, it's weird, though. Like, most of my favorite stuff about what he was doing doesn't really make it anywhere in Alien 3, I don't think. Most of it gets completely thrown out. I mean, there are some bits and pieces here and there, but the majority of his script doesn't get used, or even ideas don't, don't get used at all. And I, I think that his script has enough, like, great ideas to where if it had gone through a couple more drafts, it probably could have been a really solid movie. Mm. But I do think that it, the pacing of that first and second act needed a little jump start. You know what I mean? Anyway. It was good to have everybody back, though. I was happy nice. that... Newt's you know, there. Just, you know, they introduced yeah. a few in, very interesting, like, side characters, like the space commies, the UPPs, and all that. And, like, it's... I don't know. It's it's a cool dynamic. It's a really cool idea, especially considering that they are very anti what 
the Colonial Marines stand for. So you have a conflict there and everything. I don't know, it's it's very cool, I think. So at this point, you know, Gibson's out. Uh, so the producers had to find someone else to write the script for the film. And their next move was to hire a writer who was more experienced in penning screenplays. They hired a screenwriter. Uh, and the man that they hired was Eric Red, who had written The Hitcher and Near Dark. So speaking of his script, Red would later say, The basic problem when I was involved for five weeks was that the producers didn't know what they really wanted. And this is a sentiment, by the way, that you will hear over and over again throughout the development process on the film, is that the, the producers are hiring guys without really saying, hey, this is what we're looking for, right? Mm. They, just, they just know what they don't want. Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So while Gibson had only been given a mere three months to turn his, in his first draft, Red was given an even shorter window, two months, and on top of the rush time frame, Alien 3's producers had been pretty unclear on what they were hoping from him. One piece of information that he was given by producers was that Ripley would not be the star of the film, since they were still unsure of Weaver's involvement. So, like Gibson, Red had to write around the character of Ripley, but instead of focusing on Hip, Hicks or you know any of the characters from Aliens, Eric Red decided to kill all of the survivors of the previous film off screen, including Ripley. Of course, so, that'll mostly stick. Yeah. So, <laughs> so when Fincher's film eventually came out, one big point of contention was the off screen killing of Hicks and Newt. But imagine how audiences would have felt if Red's script had been produced. In this version of the story, a xenomorph slaughters everyone on the Sulaco while they're in hypersleep. So there's no funeral like the one that Hicks and Newt get in the film. They're just kind of thrown away. Everyone, including Ripley, they're just like written off. <laughs> Jeez. And, and it's it's insane. I just think that that's like I get that you want to do something different if you're the producers. That's ambitious, and you want to you want to have like a worthy story for the next one. But for me, it always feels like with sequels that this is going to just sound dumb that I'm about to say this, but I'm gonna. Uh, I just I'm watching the species movies right now, mm-hmm. and like uh, all of them after part you one. Well, we started with the first one just because the wife and I were like, "How long have you seen this?" I was like, "Like high school? I don't know." And so we what watched. What was your the favorite part like, about that movie? When you watched it during high school, uh, it was uh, the the lead actress and her uh, acting ability. <laughs> was, yeah, mine too. <laughs> there's there is an infinite amount of nudity in this movie, um, and it gets even it gets even more in the second one. Well, and that's where I was going to go. It's like the only thing that saves the second one. I, I don't even know if I can make it to part three, but the only thing that saves the second one is that like. Natasha Henstridge, Michael Madsen, like a, a few of the people returned from yeah. the first one. So it feels like a movie. And I guess my point being here is that I get that you want to do something different, but this is no way to make friends, guys. <laughs> right. Like it feels like it's the immediate way to relegate yourself to, oh, it was just another one of the alien sequels. You know, yeah, right it's, from it's the one thing if the second film had not been a direct, you know, ha- had Ripley and, and, you know, had been directly related to the first film. Like the Predator franchise can get away with that, right? Because right. Predator 2 immediately was just a completely different story where a Predator was coming down to hunt people, right? So you didn't have to have the same guys. You didn't have to have Arnold come back. I'm sure they wanted him, but I, I know they wanted him. He turned it down. But so they just turned it into a whole new story with Danny Glover and uh, Gary Busey, yep. right? Gary Busey. Yeah. And then so that opened up the Predator franchise to be able to like just tell stories where predator comes down and starts hunting people 
which is how we get like prey, you know, like a story that's completely unrelated, could not be more unrelated to the previous ones, but the franchise is already established that that's what it's doing. Alien was followed by Aliens, which features the same lead character. So at that point in the franchise, you kind of have to keep rolling with a continuous story. I Maybe I'm not being fair to it, but yeah, it feels like that the Alien franchise became just as much Ripley's movies as it did oh, uh, yeah. anybody else's. Mm, absolutely. And, uh, the, and, and the Xenomorph just as a concept the predator works for we've talked about this before already but like the predator works for being in different places all the time and Mm -hmm. just like exploring and finding stuff and the xenomorphs kind of get stumbled upon so you know you could do that a few times that somebody happens upon the xenomorphs i guess right yeah it's like (laughs) die hard 2 where bruce willis just happens to be in a airport on christmas that's being taken over by terrorists like a year after the nakatomi plaza right like like what <laughs> right, are the chances right. of that happening <laughs> yeah so eric red because he kills off all of these characters he then has to introduce an all new cast of characters including a new protagonist a special forces soldier with the rather bland name of sam smith After the opening on the Sulaco, where the remains of Ripley, Newton, Hicks are found, and where many of Smith's men are slaughtered, the action moves to a small town that's been recreated inside of a biodome on a police station. So Now, if only they combined this movie with biodome. Oh, man. Pauly Shore versus Xenomorphs? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Stephen Baldwin, Pauly Shore. (laughs) Uh, Aliens versus the Weasel. (laughs) People would pay good money to see Pauly Shore get obliterated by a xenomorph let's be honest (laughs) people would have accepted him as a hero around this time i think i don't remember what year those movies were happening that was like early to mid 90s probably so it was a little bit after this i don't think he had because son-in-law was like okay we are getting off topic today son-in-law was like his first (laughs) starring role right which was like probably like 93 or so yeah side note on that that too like let's keep this tangents going i just realized from uh uh, in son-in-law the other day, for some reason, I looked it up and what's her name now? Uh, Carla Gugino. Yes. I was going to yeah. say, I had no idea she was the chick from son-in-law. Yeah. Like, oh, really? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. My, my, one of my all time favorite celebrity crushes. I just saw Lisa Frankenstein. She's in that. She's really good. Oh, in nice. The movie's okay. She's good in it. Anyway, anyway. aliens. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so for the sake of time, I'm not going to go over all the details on this Eric Red script. But I will say that if the producers had been disappointed that Gibson didn't give them enough outlandish ideas, they certainly got their fair share of them from Red. In his script, military scientists are conducting experiments using face huggers on farm animals. Now, this may have been a concept that Red took from Gibson's draft, that the idea of you know the xenomorph incubating inside of other animals. But Gibson never went so far as to include alien chickens, which Eric Red definitely does. <laughs> which is one he thing also- the series had been missing. Alien chickens. He also introduces the idea that aliens can assimilate not just living things, but technology as well. So the military is hoping to use them to create, I don't know, xenomorph tanks or something. Uh, I know, it's very stupid. It's a it's a very dumb concept. Uh, oh, so- one hand, I want to that 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 like maybe that comes from the HR Geiger or Giger side of things. Like he seems to have like a interest in the mechanical, the biological, too. and mechanical. Yeah, I guess so. But yeah, I mean, yeah. come on, like that's. But silly. yeah, this he's definitely less uh, in his script, less concerned with the science side of the fiction, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> even simple stuff too. Like I know there's there's like one part where somebody gets sucked out into space, but like it's like in 
in Gibson's, he keeps it real and they get instantly freeze dried, but red rolls around and he gets somebody out in the space and they fucking explode. Cause <laughs> hell yeah, I guess. But, um, he also uh, never even bothers to explain in his script where the alien comes from. Like, you know, like in Gibson's, you find out that like there's, it's in the life pod or whatever with Bishop. And like, yeah. so they give you like a story behind it, but it's just like, I feel like in reds and maybe I missed it somewhere, but it feels like it just kind of starts happening. Like yeah. it just, you know, it's <laughs> no explanation like, an alien here. Yep. Yeah. This is, you, you guys came for an alien movie. I don't need to explain where the alien came from. You know, it's going to be there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, eventually this whole story turns into rednecks versus aliens is what it is, nice. uh, which sounds cooler than, than it really is. But, but the, uh, because it, it, the story has these hillbilly residents of the small town biodome uh, team up with the military to fight aliens who unsurprisingly end up going on a rampage. So at one point in the script, it is revealed that Sam Smith's father and his military superior, creatively named General John Smith. Uh, I, I have to just hope that uh, this was a first draft and Eric Red was just putting in like random yeah, like, placeholders. Like just, yeah, he placeholder names. Be, because right? you maybe just now, I was just thinking that the, the uh, Sulaco, the ship, like they're going to the space station Sulaco. And I'm like, you couldn't think of another name for the space station. <laughs> like, we're going to use. That I got name. time for names. Okay, <laughs> so, um, I got a, I got two months, and I ain't fucking thinking of another name. Sam Smith. Although we'll I will say, out. every time you say his name, I think of the singer. The singer. So it's revealed that John. It's revealed that General John Smith has been keeping a secret. He voluntarily injected himself with xenomorph DNA, which transforms him into an alien-human hybrid. And then, and I am not making this shit up, a mosquito bites John and spreads the alien-hybrid hybrid DNA to all of the livestock. So we get alien cows, and then we find out that everyone in the town is <laughs> turned into an alien-human monstrosity because an infected chicken fell into the town water supply. <laughs> I am... Okay. <laughs> now I don't. I don't. Honestly, I kind of want to see this movie. Yeah. I was gonna say. Um, I was gonna <laughs> shut up. And hear me out. Money. <laughs> another. Say, an, all right. Hear me another out. Another alien movie. We, we all kind of want to see this, right? Like <laughs> they never would have produced another alien movie because this would have been so bad that it would have destroyed the franchise. But I kind of wish that it existed. <laughs> and then this happens. And this, by the way, I'm. This is a direct quote from the script. Fifty humans have been turned into an alien thing. They have fused together into one thing. It is a two-story, moving, murderous mass of armor and flesh, eyeballs and tongues, screaming mouths and jackhammer jaws, and a huge amorphous blob of arms, legs, talons, hooks, snouts, and teeth. I like this, the idea that the uh, special effects crew is going to be reading this, and they're like, what, what do you think he's going for here, man? Right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It sounds like the end of Akira is what it sounds like. <laughs> like no. So then this alien Katamari also begins fusing with the space station itself, which also comes to life. <laughs> so I'll give after- him I'll give him props in that he like at least seems to be trying to head back into like the horror roots or something. Maybe. Uh, yeah. Body horror, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Tetsuo the Iron Man territory a little bit here. <laughs> So after Smith and his family escape on board a space shuttle, there's one final twist. The space shuttle is also infected and it comes alive. So <laughs> Smith manages to escape in a spacesuit 
I don't know about his family. Uh, but, it, but Smith ends up, he might have left him behind. I don't know. He escapes in a space suit and launches a nuclear missile at the giant alien space station kaiju. And the movie ends. Roll credits. Whew. <laughs> to his credit, Eric Red was very aware of the many flaws of his script, later saying in an interview, quote, that's the one script that I completely disowned because it was not my script. It was a rush product of too many story conferences and interference with no time to write, and it turned out utter crap. So he's aware. He knows. He knows what he did. <laughs> so, Oh, and by the way, like I said, this is a very small – you can read this whole script online if you want to. It's pretty easy to find. But one thing I did not mention – was the Sub-Zero sex scene that happens during the, the climactic battle scene where both participants are murdered by a xenomorph just as they climax. hey Which, I, you know. I also love, too, by the way, that, you know, you mentioned rednecks versus aliens. It's like, on this planet, for some f- freaking reason, they're using, like, I think he describes, like, there's guns like a Colt 45 and a Winchester repeater. Like, it's no <laughs> explanation on that that I can remember that we've clearly seen futuristic weapons already. Yeah, so these, these guys weapons are just would really have to be like antique. hundreds of years. <laughs> yeah, like hundreds of years old guns that they're using, like cowboys versus aliens or something now. And it's like, yeah. uh, it's real weird. I'll give him props, yeah. though, that he does seem to explore a little bit more on the, the alien. I know it sounds stupid, but I was going to say like the aliens, their DNA mixing with other things. That's like kind of mentioned in Gibson's script a little bit. Red seems to run with that. That becomes a huge thing for like uh, the toys. I remember because for some reason there were alien toys. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Back when you could have an R-rated franchise and do this. And I I had Rambo toys. I had Robocop toys. I had Terminator 2 toys. I had them all. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, I remember. I should not have been watching. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's just so weird that those got made into toys. But I remember one of the ways they could convince you to buy more here, and I had a couple of friends who would buy some of them, is just like they would have like the different versions of aliens. Like you could have like a, a tiger alien, you know. Did it have stripes? Like, yeah, I think it did. Like there were like little features that were the same. But I remember there was a gorilla one that had like big arms, you know, and huh. it had like the posture <laughs> of a gorilla. But it was the xenomorph head, you know, it's real weird. I think they may yeah. have even done that in the video games or something, too. But, yeah, wow. I'm going to start collecting those. That's my new goal now is to collect all the animal alien toys. <laughs> I would, except before we started recording, we talked about how I cannot do this because I'm a completionist. And there were so many of those. I already know. <laughs> you got to have them all. So Harlan, uh, Rennie Harlan, Guyler Hill, none of them were very impressed with the script that Eric Red had written. So Eric Red was fired, and yet another screenwriter was brought in to have a go at it. And that writer was David Toohey, who at this time only had a couple of screenplays under his belt, including uh, Critters 2 and Warlock, though he would later go on to write much bigger films such as The Fugitive, Waterworld, and G.I. Jane, and he is the writer-director behind Vin Diesel's Riddick franchise. Nice. So just to establish, we will have no David Toohey slander on this podcast. <laughs> hey, I'm a fan of David David Toohey. I, I, uh, I love uh, not just the Riddick movies, but I, he did a movie called The Arrival with Charlie Sheen. That's about an oh, alien yeah. invasion that I think is really cool, and he did a another one with Bruce Greenwood called Below that came out in the early 2000s it's about a haunted submarine what a great concept nice. a haunted submarines you can't get out, you can't leave it you can't get out of it it's a great concept it's a great little movie great little uh, 
little horror movie. So I'm I'm a fan of that guy. I also love The Fugitive, and I'll be honest, I love Waterworld. I rewatched it a couple weeks ago. It's fun. It's a stupid <laughs> movie. I like it. Uh, I don't remember G.I. Jane very much. I oh, just I remember love G.I. Jane. Demi Moore being bald. So, I mean, I'm, it's Ridley Scott, so, you know, could be good. G.I. Jane's dope. Man. Yeah. I'm sure it is. I just haven't seen it in many years, oh, so okay. I, I, I can't you, speak I to its quality. <laughs> oh, anyway, uh, so David Toohey gets hired to work on Alien 3. And he was instructed to write his draft using Gibson's script as the starting point. But by this time, Cold War analogy was starting to feel a little bit dated, seeing as the Berlin Wall had fallen. And by the time the film was actually released, so had the Soviet Union. So it would have really felt dated mm-hmm. by then. So Tui changed his setting to a prison planet, which was being used for illegal experiments on the aliens to develop a biological weapon. Well, prison well, planet sounds familiar. It does, yeah. We're getting into some familiar territory here. Uh, But Rennie Harlan did not like this approach, feeling that it was too similar to the previous films. Because remember, what Harlan really wanted was a story set on the alien homeworld, just like Ridley Scott. So, tired of the development hell that this project was stuck in, Harlan, like others before him, left the film, leaving the project without a director. But he'll bounce it. He's got a cliffhanger to go direct. And, you know, know, a bit of a dupe. He'll get to... Yeah, he's going to do Die Hard 2 next. Black. Yeah, he's doing Die Hard 2 next, but then then he's moving on. to. They're not all winners, but they're they're not all winners. Uh, Cliffhanger is good, though, isn't it? What a great movie. Uh, It's been a while. Cliffhanger's fun. Long Kiss Goodnight's good. I mean, we gave that credit to Shane Black mostly, I guess, but like we... I mean, it would have been better if Shane Black had directed it instead of Rennie Harlan. I think yeah, yeah. Um, so I will give uh, David Tui credit here. He does, uh, in his script, seem to take it back down to one alien. So he's mm-hmm. leaning into that uh, Ridley Scott version. And what Alien 3 ends up being, I guess. And then uh, there's some characters in there that I was I was looking at uh, some of the notes from it on the, uh, what's that? I forget the site now, the Xeno. Uh, Xenopedia or, or something. Xenopedia, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I looked at notes on this one. I didn't actually see the actual script here, but they did talk about some aspects of his stuff seems to have been taken over to resurrection a lot. Like, uh, yeah. like, in that, well, that really Scott had wanted to do a thing where a hole gets punctured in the ship and somebody gets sucked through it, which is uh, David Tui puts in his script, but still it doesn't happen. And then it does get used in resurrection. Finally. It's such a weird scene in Resurrection too, isn't it? With that little yeah. little bit of flesh coming through the window, like a little wiggly. Yes. Oh. <laughs> it's, so, yep. it's so gross to me for some reason. <laughs> yeah. It's uh and then also I think Tui's script had like the the weird, like deformed things. Like there was a scene where like deformed things of the glass tubes that were like yeah. referencing like cloning happening and stuff oh, like that that's all in resurrection too yeah interesting yeah which will come back in resurrection yeah weird we'll have but to talk anyway. about resurrection one day i mean we're on this alien franchise thing so we might as well, well. i mean this is the yeah. one we've just most naturally just gone yeah. through <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a jean-pierre Jeunet series and do like city of lost children and delicatessen and, and then alien resurrection and how did that that'd be fun actually that's a good idea yeah not, note that down do y'all want to hear our listeners, would you like to hear a Jean-Pierre Jeunet series? That would be fun. Yes, is the answer. <laughs> so did you just answer for them? I answered for them. So, All right. just like the scripts that had been turned in by Gibson and Red, Tui's script did not feature Ripley at all, per Brandywine's instructions. But once the script made its way to Fox's president, Joe Roth, he hated the idea of an alien movie without Ripley, saying, quote, Sigourney Weaver is the centerpiece of the series, 
and that Ripley was really the only female warrior that we have in our movie mythology, which I don't think is accurate, but, uh, but I get, I get the sentiment, you know? So Fox reached out to Weaver to try to make a deal, something that would persuade her to come on board for the sequel. Well, what got her on board was a big old paycheck. <laughs> she was offered a $4 million salary plus a share of the box office receipts, uh, which she, you know, so that, that worked that she said yes, but with some caveats, she needed the script to meet her standards. So she had to approve the script and she didn't want the story to be dependent on guns. So, which is a weird thing for this, but I think we discussed it a little bit in our aliens episode that she, she was very uncomfortable with the guns in that. Uh, but James yeah, Cameron was wasn't like, going to budge on the gun thing. Yeah. I feel like there may have been something about, she was an advocate for, anti-gun violence stuff or something like that at one point yeah and if you've seen the final version of alien 3 then you know that they did write a way for there not to be guns in it so she got her way on that she also wanted ripley to die at the end by the way that was another one of her stipulations is that ripley does not make it to alien 4 all right so they've got weaver on board so Tui went about you know he's rewriting his screenplay writing ripley into the screenplay now, at this point, it felt like the project's getting to a pretty good place, right? They had a, the franchise's stars on board, finally. They had a writer who's dutifully working on a screenplay. And there was only one problem, is that Brandywine needed to find a director to replace Rennie Harlan. So in 1988, producer Walter Hill found himself at a screening of a film called The Navigator, a medieval odyssey directed by a New Zealand native named Vincent Ward. Now, Admittedly, before working on this series, I was pretty unfamiliar with Ward's work outside of What Dreams May Come, which is probably his most well-known film that he's directed. Uh, and I had never heard of The Navigator. But it's where uh, the the kid like yeah gets on the spaceship yeah, and like disappears the, for a while. That's and, the flight. Uh, Paul of Rubens the is the a flight of the Navigator, not the same. Yeah. Paul is Paul Rubens the alien in that? He is. He's the ship's voice. Yeah, like, exactly. I don't yeah. think I ever knew that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow, I'll just learn something. Thanks for that. Are Thanks you, for are, this educational moment. Are you serious? You didn't know that? I don't think I did. And I watched that movie all the time when I was a kid, but I I was an idiot because I was a kid. So he even does the laugh. Anywhere you want, Navigator. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, Davey. Uh, Davey. Want to learn to swim? You got to jump would in the water. Don't program the a, why, why would anyone program a spaceship computer to sound like Pee Wee Herman? <laughs> <laughs> whose, whose decision was that uh maybe that's just what that's what people whatever alien race that ship was from that's just what they sounded like yeah maybe that was just a normal sounding dude and that anyway that's another version of alien three it's they go to the home world and it's actually <laughs> like populated with paul <laughs> it's all paul Rubens. justin just Pee-wee. justin would have loved prometheus if uh those guys had been <laughs> oh man, the the big white alien dudes were all yeah, were all uh, Paul Rubens. Yeah, I was trying to think of what their names their names were. The Rubens, the Rubens. So yeah, anyway, I'd never really heard of this film. I had not. I really didn't even know the name of Vincent Ward. I only know that he did What Dreams May Come because I looked him up. You know? But uh, it did seem like the Navigator was very popular, at least in Australia and New Zealand, and it won several awards, including the Australian Film Institute Award for Best Film. And I did watch the movie, by the way, because I was curious about it. And it's a weird it's a weird little movie, but it's very stylish, very cool looking, very quirky and strange. It's a uh, I don't know what it was that attracted Walter Hill 
the, the well, I don't know what it was about it that made him think, hey, this guy would be good to make Alien Three, and because it feels like if you, if you wanted a movie that looked like Alien or like The Navigator, then Alien Three was going to look vastly different than any, any of the previous films had. But at any rate, he was impressed enough by the film to offer Ward a job directing Alien Three. So there was something about it that appealed to him that made him think this is the guy. So Ward, you know, he reluctantly accepted. But he wasn't real big on Tui's script, so he started working up another idea, which involved Ripley's escape pod crashing on a monastery-like satellite. And he pitched this idea to Fox, who approved it, and Ward was officially hired by the studio, along with writer John Fasano, who was hired to expand this story idea into a screenplay. So Ward's vision of this satellite monastery was of a wooden planet that was intentionally archaic in design. Uh, according to Ward's official website, which, by the way, has an entire section dedicated to his version of Alien 3, so if you're curious about it, go check out Vincent Ward's website. Uh, but according to that website, the story went something like this. A monk on this satellite sees a star in the east, is what he refers to it as, believing at first that it's a good omen. In reality, this star turns out to be Ripley's escape pod, and her arrival, along with suggestions of an alien presence on the monastery, make the monks start to believe that they're undergoing some sort of religious trial, punishable by the creature who haunts them, who they think is, you know, like the devil. So these guys are deeply religious, something's stalking them on the monastery, and, you know, it's, we know it's the alien, but they think it's some sort of devil or demon, right? So they see all of this as being connected somehow. As in the final film, Ripley is the first woman to arrive among the all-male population in 10 years. So to avoid the you know sexual temptation that she brings with her, they lock her in a dungeon-like sewer and, naturally, ignore her advice about the true nature of the monster that's roaming their satellite. So as you can tell by that short description, the story has some similar beats as the final film, with Ripley getting impregnated by the xenomorph and eventually sacrificing herself in order to kill it. So Fox did request an alternate ending where Ripley doesn't die, uh, but remember, Weaver would only agree to be in the film if Ripley died at the end. Yeah, sounds a little silly, but I will say, um, with, with, the, with the the impregnation thing, and I guess we'll probably, we could get into this further, but this one tried to explain, like, you know, in three, like, if you go from the earlier movies until this one, like, the alien thing happens pretty quick once it, yeah, once it's in you, uh, it comes out pretty fast. And, uh, yeah, it's not like, like a long Mexican gestation food. period at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, the, uh, they, they try to explain it in this script as something about, like, it when you eat it makes it happen. And like, so she had not eaten in a long time or something. That's what makes it start happening. And that's oh, okay. Well, at least they attempted an explanation, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It was something weird like that, but I think that I was reading that, that like that works in the first one, uh, like Ash is eating when it happens or whatever, but then it doesn't really work in the second one because there's like some of the people that it pops out of are like cocooned up. So they haven't been like yeah. eating or anything. And, uh, yeah, that's true. Anyway, so, I don't continuity know. wise doesn't quite work, but the continuity in this franchise is let's let's be honest, um, spotty at best. Anyway, <laughs> you add what you need when you need right. it. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So this version of the film got a lot far further along in development than any of the other ones, with production drawings being produced by designer Norman Reynolds and sets beginning to be constructed. Like they they're ready, they're building sets. However. This whole concept 
proved to be kind of divisive. The producers at Brandywine naturally questioned the logic of maintaining a wooden planet in space. You know, like, how does that work? Uh, And then Fox executive John Landau called Ward's version more on the artsy-fartsy side than on the big commercial side, which, if you've seen The Navigator, will come as no surprise. So the producers suggested that Ward turn the isolated planet into an ore refinery and change the monks into prisoners playing on, you know, David Toohey's prison planet idea that had come before. But Ward refused to make these changes and thus was fired. Yeah, yet another director fired. Uh, so the main plot of the finished film, however, still follows Ward's basic structure and as you watch, you'll notice that Vincent Ward still receives a story by credit. So there's enough of his screenplay in the final film that where he was at least given a story by credit. So what do you guys think of this version of, of the script? I mean, we, we obviously we know a little bit more about probably William Gibson's version than any of the other ones other than this one, because this one actually, like I said, they did move pretty far along in production before he left. Do you think this would have worked this whole prison like the whole wooden planet monastery thing i think it would have yes, been but yes but not as an alien movie <laughs> yeah okay well i mean the whole wood yeah. yeah i do have a wooden planet i feel like doesn't or a wooden satellite or whatever you want to call it doesn't quite fit in with this technological universe it feels almost like more of a fantasy magic kind of thing well see that that's what i was thinking uh because hearing that it reminded me of you guys remember Treasure Planet? Yeah. Where they had like the ships and yeah, outer yeah, space yeah. And stuff like that. I was like, that would have been a cool yeah, steampunk kind of thing. Like that yeah. Universe. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but not but, in a but film for where, an alien movie? No. I mean, we've already established that this is a very technology driven universe, right? Through the last two films. Yeah. So having a wooden planet all of a sudden seems a little weird. Also, what happens if you get termites? <laughs> space termites you are fucked space right termites. Yeah. <laughs> it's silly it's a silly idea but whatever i mean i i like the um i don't know the the monk thing it's kind of interesting it's a little like uh i don't know it's a different perspective of like thinking it so well, almost like in, in, in what we get with the they call it the dragon and stuff like that you know yeah i mean they That's, definitely took the religious even though the in the final film the guys are not monks they have turned to religion during their time in prison so they still get to use a, some of those ideas as a result you know without them being specifically like monks in a monastery yeah, I saw a quote from Sigourney Weaver, though, where she talked about not liking uh, Ward's script, uh, saying, uh, quote, The elements were there, but there was no story, and certainly no story involving Ripley. He really did not know what to do with my character. Yeah. So. And, uh, she was not a fan. Uh, somebody, oh, Xenopedia, I think, was where I saw this at. They pointed out, too, that it looks like The Lost World, Jurassic Park, uh took a scene from the script where the uh, mercenaries are attacked by velociraptors raptors when they're walking through the big field of grass and things start like pulling them down. Yeah. And uh, they said that's in the script that like they're walking through like a big field of grass and like the aliens are out there, but right, right below the surface of the grass and like pulling the mercenaries down. I feel like that's been done in other movies too, besides just, it might be, you know, I feel like that's like one of those 
scenes you see in a lot of stuff or or variations on that. I don't know that the Lost World pulled that oh, directly. I mean, that'd be really random. If it's done correctly, it's always cool. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, very cool. It's cool in the Lost World. The Lost World's got a lot of cool stuff in it for a movie that's not very good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It's got some good scenes in it. Uh, you might so say by- the same about Alien Three. Yeah, you exactly. <laughs> you you could say the same about Alien Three. Uh, so by this point, Walter Hill and David Geiler decided to just go have a go at the script themselves. I mean, they're they're screenwriters. I don't know why it took them this long to do this, but they, they decided they're just like, you know what? If you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. So that's where they're at. So they wrote a first draft trying to enhance the story structure on the Ward Fasano script, but. Feeling creatively drained, they hired on Highlander writer Larry Ferguson as a script doctor. So most folks involved in the production really disliked the work that Ferguson did on the script, including Weaver, who said that he made Ripley sound like a pissed-off gym teacher. Uh, With time (laughs) running out due to Fox's insistence on hitting a set release date. By the way, setting a release date ahead of time is never, never works out in the movie's favor. It never has. It, I mean, Star Wars is the only one that maybe worked out well for it. And that's only because they went half insane trying to finish the special effects to to hit that release date, right? But most Sorry, of the time... Sorry, I can't it, concentrate it, picturing Sigourney Weaver in underwear and a tank top with a uh, whistle tied around her neck. Gary, don't tell us your <laughs> sexual fantasies. Here. Come on. <laughs> this is not that kind of podcast. Are all gym teachers pissed off anyway? They, I mean, if they're a good gym teacher, they will be. I, my elementary school gym teacher was never pissed off. He just didn't give a shit about anything <laughs> at all, ever. So Geiler and Hill, they take out, they take Ferguson's script. They take it back, basically. Like they, they did not like this guy's script. So they take it. They once again took over screenwriting duties. Uh, and they fused elements of the Ward Fasano script with elements of Tui's Prison Planet scenario. Now, according to uh, Wreckage and Rage, which is a really definitive documentary about the making of Alien 3, highly recommend checking it out. Uh, Weaver had a clause written into her contract that said that the final draft should be written by Hill and Guiler since they thought, since she thought that they, you know, as the writers of the first film screenplay, were the only writers besides James Cameron who could write Ripley the way that she wanted. So even if they had gone with any of these previous screenwriters that we've mentioned, Geiler and Hill would have would they would have to rewrite the final shooting script themselves because that was a clause in in Weaver's uh her contract you know so like even if they had gone with William Gibson's script ideas Geiler and Hill would have rewritten it anyway they would have rewritten the final shooting draft of it so Look at look at Sigourney Weaver like swinging the big balls. That's right. You know they're like, hey, if you want me, these are she. She says these are my terms, and you know, and they wanted her bad enough to as they should. I mean, you know, they they needed Ripley in this movie, but oh, yeah. uh, so so they they needed to do whatever it took to get her in it. So all in all, by the time the film was released, Fox had spent thirteen million dollars on the writing of the film with no less than 10 different writers working on the project, $13 million. And they just to get a script, you know, uh, and, but when the film finally went before cameras in early 1991, it did so under the direction of a young up and coming director, one who showed a lot of talent and vision in the world of commercials and music videos. And one who presumably Fox felt was just green enough that they'd be able to control him that director was, of course, a 28-year-old named David Fincher. 
And that's where we'll pick up a part two of three of Alien 3. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just no, kidding. Not quite. Not quite. Uh, so David Fincher was born in Denver, Colorado on August 28, 1962. His mother, Claire, was a mental health nurse who worked in a drug addiction program, while his father, Howard, the who everyone called Jack for some reason, uh, was an author and the bureau chief for Life magazine. So he's got writing in his blood here, or creativity in his blood, I should say. When Fincher was just two years old, the Fincher family moved to Marin County, California, where coincidentally, he actually lived just a couple of houses down from George Lucas. Uh, He's a few years younger than George Lucas, but they were neighbors actually at the time. Uh, Fincher was drawn to filmmaking at a young age. When he was about seven years old, he saw a documentary about the filming of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and he had his first taste of how movies were made. You know, like he he saw this documentary and he's like, oh, like people – make these movies you know people i i had the similar experience with terminator 2 uh because i remember seeing a bunch of behind the scenes stuff on that and i was eight or so years old nine years old when that came something like that and that was my first glimpse of like oh man like people have this as a job they make these movies don't just appear out of thin air you know which is a silly thing to think but when you're like seven or eight years old you know you're you're dumb as shit you know so (laughs) So, yeah i mean with superman i remember the first time i saw superman i asked my dad how they did that and he told me they just tied christopher reeve to a crane and swung him around i i thought that he was on a glass table that was just in it just didn't you know you couldn't see on the camera he was just laying there which honestly is more logical than a crane <laughs> yeah you're right just the idea of swinging christopher Reeve. uh yeah very, so very dangerous so he, so fincher sees this documentary about the making of butch cassidy and the sundance kid and from that point on making movies was all he ever wanted to do and about a year later his father gifted him his first camera an eight millimeter film camera that he would use to shoot movies in his backyard we should take you should just take a shot every time we talk about a director making movies in his backyard with an eight millimeter film on this show because it's in yeah, right. almost every every director we've talked about I think oh yeah so just before high school Fincher's family relocated again this time to Ashland Oregon and in high school, Fincher spent his time directing plays, designing sets and lighting, working as a projectionist at the local movie theater and as a production assistant at a, uh, a local news station. But then after high school, he returned to Marin County, not to attend film school, but to get real world hands-on training in the business of making movies. And he landed a job as a production head at a studio owned by a director named John Cordy, who at the time was best known as the director of a television film called The Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. Uh, this is back when television films were considered, you know, they were a big deal. Like a television film in the, in the 70s um, was not like, it's not like a lifetime movie today. I mean, Steven Spielberg got to start making television movies. So with the experience that he gained working for Cordy, Fincher worked his way up to the title of visual effects producer, working on an animated film called Twice Upon a Time, which was directed by Cordy and produced by Fincher's childhood neighbor, George Lucas. So by the time he was 19 years old, an age when most of his contemporaries would have still been chugging along in film school, Fincher was working for Lucas's special effects company, Industrial Light and Magic, where he became an assistant cameraman and matte photographer, working on... A few movies you may have heard of, you know, Return of the Jedi, The Neverending Story, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So he's he's doing matte photography for all of these. But nice. by 1984, Fincher and a few of his colleagues at ILM were looking for a change. Uh, they were kind of getting bored and they were tired of neurotically sitting around waiting for whatever ILM project will come along next. And besides, 
Fincher had aspirations to be a director. That's all, what, all he ever wanted to do. He didn't want to be a map photographer on other people's movies. He would later say, quote, I don't want to be the guy who's loading the magazines for the guy who was shooting the scenes for the guy who had the whole thing in his head. I want to be the guy who had the whole thing in his head. So these ILM guys decided they'd make some pitches to organizations who might be willing to hire them on the cheap, specifically focusing on people who might be willing to spend money on public service announcements. So one day, uh, while a bunch of these young ILM guys were sitting around a table having dinner, they, they started throwing out ideas, you know, and they came up with the idea that they thought was they thought it was funny. Uh, they thought this was a funny idea, that, and they ended up pitching it. But it, the the idea was the it was the, basically just an image, the image of a fetus smoking a cigarette in utero. That was just this image that they came up with. So they they're like, you know what, this could actually work. And they pitched the idea to the American Cancer Society, who loved the concept and gave the crew a budget of about seven thousand dollars to create the ad. And I will never forget it. It will haunt my dreams. <laughs> Did you uh, see it when you were three years old in 1984? No, I mean, I know <laughs> that I had seen it, uh, but now I watched it again just for this. And uh, yeah. it's still so fucking weird looking. It's cool. It's effective. Yeah, yeah. very effective. Uh, we should put up some behind the scenes stuff of that, too. I saw like where they had like that baby is way bigger than you would think. Um, well, yeah, it's and- not it's not baby sized. <laughs> yeah well i don't know unless you're a giant you never know <laughs> speaking of uh things that are really unique looking at too i did mean to say when you were talking about uh twice upon a time earlier that's a you should look up if if you're listening to this look up the trailer for twice upon a time it is such a weird looking movie and it really is i've never seen the movie but the trailer it's it's bizarre looking yeah and i saw like henry Selleck. uh also worked on that too. Like oh wow! Nightmare cool. Before Christmas and yeah, yeah. Coraline and stuff. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's just so different. Like that animation on there was kind of unique. Really um, interesting. Anyway, back to the giant baby, the smoking fetus. All right. So this commercial, this commercial was mostly filmed on the weekends with David Fincher directing, and the fetus itself was a puppet that was created by a sculptor named Tony McVeigh, who had worked on The Dark Crystal. Uh, Return of the Jedi, Richard Donner, Superman, among many other things that you've heard of, I promise. Like, look him up. This guy's like kind of a legend in in the special effects community. And this little uh, 30 second one of the, commercial. One of the famous, one of the famous McVeigh clan. <laughs> I don't think there's, a, I hope there's no relation. <laughs> uh, yeah, from, the, Oklahoma, from Oklahoma. Uh, so this little 30 know, second commercial. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I don't I'm really off track now. So this little 30-second American Cancer Society commercial, it caused a bit of an uproar with both CBS and NBC refusing to air it on the grounds that it was too graphic and potentially offensive to their viewers. I did see like specifically uh they said it was general taste considerations. Yeah. Uh that they that that's how they worded it. Uh they agreed with the importance and the intent of the message. Uh, but that it was uh, too different visually for standard audiences or something weird. It was the way they worded it was so, so odd. But the thing is that the, the commercial got a lot of press, partially because of this controversy. And it also won a lot of awards and it brought Fincher to the attention of producers in Hollywood. And it wouldn't be long before he was fielding offers to come to Los Angeles to talk about doing some music videos. So Fincher up and moved to L.A., signed with a video production company, hoping to have the opportunity to also work on more commercials since it had seemed to work out for Ridley Scott, which was one of Fincher's heroes. Because uh, Ridley Scott, of course, had gotten his start in England as an ad man working on commercials. 
But at the time, nobody wanted Fincher to do commercials, thinking that he wasn't experienced enough. So Fincher focused on getting his foot in the door of the growing music video industry, which was on the cusp of blowing up thanks to the popularity of the newly established MTV. It's really disappointing nobody's made a t-shirt yet with the uh, fetus alien inside of an egg, you know, like smoking a cigarette. Anyway, I'll start. <laughs> <laughs> How are those improv classes on the weekends working out for you, Gary? They're good. I gotta, I gotta start going. <laughs> I gotta start showing up for them. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, so Fincher's first music video was Rick Springfield's Bop Till You Drop, which depicts the Australian rocker as a savior figure in a post-apocalyptic future. And the video manages to invoke everything from H.R. Geiger to Fritz Lang's Metropolis and the Mad Max movies, but it really does also feel like a precursor for Fincher's later work on Alien 3. Like, it feels kind of similar, uh, a similar aesthetic, I guess you could say. I sat down with the wife and we watched all of these movies like straight or music videos, all of his music videos, like straight through, just like a, had a whole couple of hours of this, I guess. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I am amazed that for some reason I had literally never heard of this song before. I never heard it in my life. It was a big enough hit to have a pretty expensive looking video. (laughs) Yeah, and, and no, it does. It does. It definitely feels like yeah, uh, Mad Max or something. And, but, yeah. but you can start to see. You can tell totally. You you can easily believe this is the guy that's going to go on to do Alien Three. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Fincher would work with Springfield several times over the next year or two, including as the director of uh, his 1985 concert film, The Beat of the Live Drum, which incorporates Fincher's videos for Springfield in between the concert footage. And then in 1986, at the age of 24, he's only 24 years old, okay, Fincher co-founded Propaganda Films, one of the first production companies whose primary focus was to create music videos and commercials. Now, most of the directors who were hired on at Propaganda later graduated to feature film directing, including names like Michael Bay, Antoine Fuqua, Michel Gondry, Spike Jones, Mark Romanek, Zack Snyder, all, a lot of guys you've heard of, basically. Then in 1988, Fincher worked with his first, like, real superstars. You know, like, Rick Springfield was well-known, but he he was probably bigger in, like, Australia than he ever was here. He had a couple of big hits here, but he wasn't, like, a superstar. But in 1988, Fincher worked with Sting, Steve Winwood, and Paula Abdul. So these were definitely, like, the biggest names he'd worked with so far. And then with Abdul in particular, Fincher found a collaboration that would be fruitful for both of them. Their first video together was... Uh, it's just the way that you love me, followed by the iconic video for Straight Up. Yeah, this is nuts. Like uh, the Paula Abdul videos are a little different. Um, they 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 look cool, um, and it's almost like I think I think Straight Up had like two versions. Yeah, uh, that I saw, and one mm-hmm. like had kind of some of the the way that you love me like merged into it. It felt like, uh, but uh, the black and white version of uh, Straight Up, I think uh, that. That's the most well-known one, yeah. Yeah, I I totally do remember that video pretty well. And uh, yeah, and I think in 89 MTV Music Video Awards, he won like some insane amount of stuff. One thing I thought was cool when I was watching it, though, I was like, I know some of these people. And it does. It has like Arsenio Hall. and uh, But even more fun is, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this name, so help me out. Jaman Hansu. 
the guy from uh, oh yeah from Amistad and uh, yeah a, a million other movies <laughs> yeah yeah but he's in there too and I just, oh I just nice I didn't realize it well all in all Fincher would end up directing five videos for Paul Abdul but that would not be his biggest collaboration of this time period because in 1989 Fincher helmed the video for Madonna's Express Yourself one of the most popular and iconic videos of the entire decade. Uh, this was Fincher working on the biggest scale that he'd ever worked on with one of the biggest stars in the world. And the two would also collaborate on the videos for Oh Father, Vogue, and Bad Girl. And according to some sources, were something of an item during this time while they were working together. Just, Justin, you know, you, you do a lot of really good research, but I find it hard to believe that Madonna would get involved with somebody she's working with. <laughs> Just out of character. It's a little out of character for her. Yeah. She's she's the only like I don't know. She's only had like a couple of partners that I'm aware of <laughs> in her yeah. career. Yeah. Uh see, I feel like now just just you know, Madonna is fantastic and good for her. I, I feel yeah. I don't want to sound like we're trying to uh Oh, I was trying to think of another term besides slut shame Madonna, but that's I don't the know. best term for, what, for where yeah, you were going with that thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Uh, anyway, no. I went down a rabbit hole of this Madonna stuff and I was reading about like how successful her music was for some reason, like just, just and the music videos that she had, especially these with David Fincher. And mm -hmm. it's just, it's crazy to me. Like, I don't think people even realize like, a generation after us doesn't even know what MTV is or the concept of having a channel that just plays music videos, obviously. Right. But, uh, you know, this video, like, Express Yourself, I think, or it was like, all like, it had to, like, it was contractually, like, it played at least every hour on the channel. Yeah, I believe like, it. Yeah. Madonna says she had a choice in pretty much everything in that, but that's the one that, like, uh, also you could tell, like, had, you know, that influence for, like, uh, metropolis or something oh yeah big time big big oh, time big it, it feels like brazil a little bit like the way the sets are built and stuff which you yeah. know yeah was probably also influenced by metropolis among other things well and i was gonna say she says she had like full control of that but i was like that had to come from fincher right or like maybe madonna she, really loves fritz leg i don't know but he probably just had to sign off on every decision that was being made i would imagine like i i, I think probably fincher came up with the concept and she had to like give her approval for everything yeah and that he mentioned uh the 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 oh father video and that one apparently didn't do as well so they like push really hard for him to get vogue done with her yeah and uh and so he had to do that i think she was already on tour or something at the time so they had to like really strategically plan that but i you know that's considered one of the greatest music videos of all, of all time. time yeah absolutely yeah like it, it is instantly I, recognizable I really I really liked the Oh Father video. I thought oh, yeah, it's great. great. They're all great. Yeah, yeah, they are. Yeah, absolutely. And Fincher would go on to become one of the biggest, most influential music video directors of the 80s and 90s, directing videos for the likes of Aerosmith, George Michael, Billy Idol, Michael Jackson, and the Rolling Stones. Hey, and I love Freedom 90. Uh, Dude, that video is but... so... First of all, I love that song, Freedom 90. Uh, anyway, yeah. it's my favorite, like George Michael or Wham or anything. It's my favorite George Michael song. Period. Well, it's called that, Freedom Ninety because Wham had a song called Freedom, but this Freedom Ninety is different. Was this from nineteen ninety? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. So it's a great video, by the way. I mean, that video is just a bunch of supermodels singing the song, but but yeah. like you know, like 
David Fincher knew, he's like, you know what we're going to really, how we're really going to sell this song is we're going to hire like six of the most attractive people in the world and they're going to shoot it and they're going to sing it. And it, plus it's gorgeously shot. It's a great video. And uh, it's like almost seven minutes long. That's a long song, which I never, I don't think I ever realized it was that long, but it is a really great video. I agree. That's the one where I, um, over maybe, maybe not that one, but it definitely screamed like a lot of, uh, fight club vibes. I was like, Okay. Well, he's got this like kind of dark, that kind of dark aesthetic that he would become known for. You know, uh, I, I could see a little bit of that there for sure. Yeah. This uh, that video too, by the way, was like I think Cindy Crawford had appeared like publicly on screen, like maybe in like some Michael J. Fox thing earlier on, like very, very briefly. This is considered like her debut, like really on your screens, basically. Hell of a debut. So to tell you just how successful David Fincher was as a music video director, in 1990, he had three separate videos nominated for the Video of the Year at the MTV Video Music Awards, a record that has never been broken and probably never will be because obviously the music video culture has changed so drastically. Uh, And for the record, those three videos were for Madonna's Vogue, Aerosmith's Janie's Got a Gun, and the decidedly less cool The End of Innocence by Don Henley. Speak for yourself. Who doesn't love some Don Henley? Now, I actually I do think Boys <laughs> of Summer is really is a really good I, song. I, do I hate love that, that song. song. I hate Boys of what? Summer. How can I you do? I don't know. Song. It's just one of those songs that grates me. I don't it's just I just do not oh, like it. <laughs> I'm with you. Like I think we share a hatred for Phil Collins, but like uh Boys of Summer is really good. Um yeah, I disagree. But. Um, he did, he, he did the, the VHS, like I, well, I used to have the VHS version of this, the big ones you could look at. I saw he was a director on there. That was the Aerosmith. Like it was like a greatest hits album. Go ahead. Was it because Janie's got a gun is on there? It it has him listed as the director of that whole video for some reason. Oh, like Hmm. it's got a bunch of music videos and all I can figure, I was going to say, I couldn't like nail down exactly like what that meant except i know that i used to because i was very poor and lived in the middle of nowhere so i any vhs i had i watched like a million times so i remember the vhs like it's it's concert footage it's also like some behind the scenes stuff and all of that that it'll go to like a music video yeah i don't know i don't know if it's like he had anything to do with the concert footage and the behind the scenes stuff or whatever but yeah, I'm I just sure. thought to bring it up. It was interesting. I I used to love that VHS. So, I want to talk a little bit about and more in depth about David Fincher's career as a music video and commercial director. Because unlike unlike some of the directors we cover, let's say John Waters for instance or Alejandro Jodorowsky, I think in the case of David Fincher, I think all three of us are pretty well acquainted with his filmography. I think we've all seen the majority, if not all, of his films. So that gives us a different perspective, I think, in going back and watching all of these music videos that he made at the beginning of his career. So knowing you know, what we know about Fincher's films, how do you think his work on music videos reflects who he will who we know that he will become as a director. Like, do you see glimpses of the man who would make fight club and the social network? Like how did, how did going back and watching these videos, how did they make you perceive Fincher as a director, knowing that this is where he got his start? The two things that I noticed were him putting stuff between his subject and the camera. 
and then him putting s- something between his subject and a light source. Mm-hmm. So kind of increasing the textures and that object between the camera and subject kind of creating a fourth wall and thereby creating fourth wall you break the fourth wall a little bit Mm -hmm. so i think you see a lot of that i mean with the um freedom 90 like as these supermodels are sitting around this you know what looks like just ready to be torn down apartment building i kept thinking of the house and fight club yeah Uh, like they could be sitting in any corner of the house and fight club but i know there was one shot and i forget the music video specifically but there was a really long pullout sequence that i was like that is the opening shot of fight club um well in your center of the brain and all the way out well in freedom 90 there's a the the video starts with the camera pulling backwards through a um a hole in a chair like there's like a chair that, uh, that it's like a wooden chair that's you know, and the camera pulls through it, which you see him do a mm-hmm. lot later on. I mean, you see him do yeah. it a lot I, in Panic I was, Room. I was gonna say, uh, one hundred percent. What I noticed was like obviously there's like I feel like the first thing you would notice standing out is uh, he has a really dark, like it just the way things look dark. That the color, the palette that he uses, it feels like stays pretty similar um, on a lot of things. But the tracking shots, like I feel like he does that quite a bit. Like, and and I think it even happens. I want to say, and like we, I just watched. I already watched seven not too long ago. I feel like I remember seeing some of that too. Like you could just, I don't know. He does like he. I mean, he's known for his dolly work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like that's a that's a big one for him. Yeah, I I feel like David Fincher. You know, when people start listing off great music video directors. You hear a lot of the same names. You hear Spike Jones, Michelle Gondry, Chris Cunningham, Mark Romanek, uh, and all of them are fantastic music video directors. There's no doubt about that. But for some reason, when people start listing off music video directors, uh, Fincher's name is rarely on that list. Uh, now, it could be because Fincher has become more synonymous with film directing, so that's what people more associate him with uh, than with his music videos, and, and with good reason. But I think you can't discount the work that he did in the field of music videos and to a lesser extent commercials uh, because he didn't do nearly as many commercials as he did music videos. But it's, it's maybe Fincher doesn't get that distinction because a lot of, unlike a lot of those other directors that I just named, Fincher primarily made pop music videos. You know, he's not making stuff for the white stripes like Michel Gondry or, Fat Boy Slim, like like Spike Jones or the Beastie Boys, he's making pop music. He's doing Paula Abdul and Madonna, and you know a lot of those other directors. A lot of those think the things that they're known for, the videos that they're known for, are almost like little short films. You know, yeah. And, and don't get me wrong, they're great short films, and these do. I mean, I think Mark Romanek might be the best music video director of all time, in my opinion. But Fincher's doing something a little bit different. You see, because his he was very successful as a music video director and he kind of had the distinction of honing his craft the whole time he was making these videos, perfecting the type of filmmaker that he wanted to be. So by the time he made his jump to feature films, his style and craft were already very well honed and we're going to spend the next several weeks talking about Fincher's filmography, of course. And one thing that will undoubtedly come up time and time again is just how precise Fincher is as a filmmaker. It is above above everything else. 
precision is the defining feature of his directorial style. He's known for doing a lot of takes. He's known for using a lot of tripod shots and dolly shots. He uses very little, you know, handheld footage. Uh, and he's known for a very rhythmic editing style. And all of that really started with his music videos. I mean, you were just talking about the dolly shot. Like that's a, that's a distinctive David Fincher thing. And I, I do want to say, Justin, too, just real quick, if I could throw this in there. I, I was a little disappointed we didn't talk about this earlier on, but, but, but well before even Paula Abdul, perhaps one of David Fincher's greatest works is, uh, for those that don't know, he did uh, the video for She's Like the Wind by Patrick Swayze. That's right. Uh, a masterpiece, if there ever was one. Yeah. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, just want to throw that in there, too, if you we, doubted his credentials. Yeah. Well, and I think... You know, we mentioned the younger generation may not have um, a solid idea of MTV and what music, what music videos were in those early days. A lot of times music videos were clips of concert footage and maybe the band playing in an, an old living room or, you know, in somebody's backyard, it looked like from time to time, but it was just... It was just cobbled together shots like just like you said, Justin, these things that um, that David Fincher was doing were a higher form. Yeah, he really elevated that art form or medium of the music video to be in line with maybe not high concept art films, but certainly more eye-catching well yeah uh, he, he's with like, with very much an artistic flair that didn't exist in other in other music videos hence all the awards and and uh and success. yeah i mean he is being very deliberate with everything that he does with these films right like take take for example um we we've mentioned it before but vogue madonna's vogue one of the most famous music videos of all times, one of the all-time great pop music videos. Uh, Vogue is a masterclass in how to shoot and edit a music video. Every single cut that he makes, every movement that you see a dancer or a Madonna make on screen in this video is in sync with the song. It's not just a series of shots of people of people singing the song. It is like the the video itself moves, it flows with the song itself. Uh, it's really astounding once you start looking at how, you know, like there's a moment where a, there's like, he's like a butler at the beginning of the video is, is dusting a, a handrail and the way his hand moves the duster is in beat with the song. Like it's insane, like that level of precision. And the thing is at the center of this whole video is of course, Madonna. Now Fincher came from doing commercials. He named his production company Propaganda Films. This is a salesman, right? And yeah. he knows that when he's he gets hired to make a video for Madonna, he's not there to make an artsy little short film. He's there to sell a product. And that product is Madonna and the song Vogue. And that's what he's doing. And he's doing everything he can to make the song, to, to make the experience of listening to the song better and to sell Madonna, right? 
and he knows how to do it, and he does it every single time. He he knows how to cut around the vocals of it of the video. He knows how to cut around the choreography of the video. Uh, like a, a lot of music videos, like I said, they are just a series of quick cuts that are flung together with little rhyme or reason. But Fincher is precise about every single decision that he makes, just as he will be on his feature films that we're going to be discussing over the course of this series. So if you start watching his music videos, you start to see an artist perfecting his craft. And you start seeing visual signatures that'll pop up again and again throughout his career, like that opening sh- shot of, of Freedom 90, you know, of that camera move through the chair, which just, yeah, looks cool, but he'll use it to great effect when he puts it in a narrative setting, like in Panic Room, right? It's kind of, it's almost like watching these music videos. They're, they're like a microcosm of what he'll become as a feature director. And in my opinion, that's a, it's an important part of understanding him as a filmmaker, you know? This is a guy who I'm sure will have stories come up again and again about his reputation for being unrelenting and doing whatever it takes to get exactly what he wants on screen, even if it means making an actor do 40 takes, because takes one through 39 were not quite what he wanted. And this is a guy who has the entire movie in his head, you know, and he knows exactly what every single shot wants to be, needs to be. So he's going to do whatever it takes to get him. He's a he's a filmmaker who knows exactly what it takes to sell what he's trying to sell, and I think as you watch these music videos, you can see that obsessiveness start begin. You can see where it started. It started from the very beginning, dude. It didn't click with me until you just said all of this. Uh, just exactly what somebody I was listening to some uh, YouTube videos with people talking about David Fincher uh, and just just trying to get a handle on the guy and. One of the things I kept hearing was, and I don't want to, I I did not think of this word for it, but the economy of filmmaking was like the way that it was worded. And I stuck with me. I was like, what does that mean? Because they were like the economy of filmmaking that David Fitcher has. And I think literally what they said was it's on the level of Spielberg, Kubrick, uh, Kurosawa, uh, and so they were like listing names like that. I think they said Orson Welles or something like that. And I was like, what does that mean? But I think that's it. I think that's it. Like the, just the precision that you do it. And I think the only person they said, like he he's the best, the only person since then that's been as good as like Edgar Wright, I think is what they were saying. And, yeah. uh, and just, uh, the precision and just, I don't know. I love that. So that's yeah, interesting. I mean, it just like click with me what that probably means, really. Yeah, yeah, like just knowing exactly what needs to be on screen to tell the story, uh, no matter yeah. what what that means. I mean, it, Edgar Wright's actually a really good example, especially like with they've got a very similar rhythmic editing style, obviously to very different ends, but uh, I, I could absolutely see that comparison there. And uh, I don't know. I think it's going to be really fun discussing. Fincher over the course of this series as we see that evolve. Now, obviously, the first movie that we're really going to talk about, Alien 3, it's, it's going to be a little more complicated of a, of a discussion regarding that because his vision is um, not fully in the final product, as, as we know. I will say it's interesting that, you know, we were talking about him selling the product and it's like I, I i was like on one hand i was like oh man yeah like look at the paula abdul videos those are great too like they really sell paula abdul especially for people that might only know her from i don't know uh uh whatever the show was uh american idol or whatever that she was doing right. uh 
you know, like you go back to that, you could like we watch those videos now, and you're like, oh dang, she was really good. Like she's yeah, she's, she's a, a star. Superstar. Um, but then uh, it is funny that like George Michael in Freedom Ninety. Well, he's not he's not in Freedom Ninety, so that's yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> that's the thing. But but at that point, he's just selling the experience of listening to the song because that's really yeah, what that that's video true. is about. That's a good point. Uh, yeah. Because all of his videos are about. You know, enhancing the experience of listening to the song, like listening to Vogue is one thing, but watching the Vogue video is another thing, right? So by the time you got to Freedom 90, it's like, you know what? I'm just going to make a video about that experience of listening to the song that I've been working on all of these videos as a way to enhance that experience. So now I'm going to show people who are enjoying the song uh, and I'm just going to use the, you know, the sexiest people alive. Yeah, there you go. He did it. He also, uh, by the way, just if you haven't seen the video for Vogue, uh, there he got in some trouble there because showed some too much of Madonna. The nips were on there, and they asked him to remove that. And I think she fought that or something. Dude, there was a whole thing about that. But hey, anyway, I, I researched that for the podcast only. <laughs> we we appreciate you, the the uh, level of detail that you bring, Gary, like to your research. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a I am nothing if not a uh, uh a scientist when it comes to to filmmaking. I don't know what I'm talking I'm, about. I'm something of a scientist myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, after he had established himself as a reliable director, he was given the chance to direct more commercials working regularly for big companies like Nike, Levi's, Budweiser, and Chanel. Uh, one of my personal favorites from this time period was a Colt 45 ad starring Billy D. Williams. The like, it works every time. You've seen those commercials; they're great. God dang, uh, those were so good. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. try to post some of these to our social media if I can, I uh, without getting in trouble. I'm going to try to post some of these old commercials and stuff. I can't post the music videos probably because I think I'd probably get they'd probably get removed from Instagram. But I think the commercials we could probably show. Uh, so uh, well, we'll figure something out. We but I will say this: YouTube links on on. Twitter and threads and stuff we go to the music videos though. I, I will say that I have never wanted a Colt 45 so bad. Billy D. Williams will sell it to you. <laughs> It'll get you laid. Every time. <laughs> so it was his unprecedented success as a music video and commercial director that led to Fincher being offered his first chance to direct a feature length film. And that film was of course, alien three. And that's and where the we're whole experience on our next episode. What? I was going to say, and the whole experience is going to be magical. <laughs> Are you still good quoting the Colt 45 ad? No, no. I was just saying. I mean, I feel like David Fincher finally got his break on a movie and everything's going to Oh, yeah. Go it was, a, it was a wonderful experience that he loves talking about to this day. <laughs> so that's where we're going to pick up on our next episode as David Fincher joins the absolute shit show that was Alien 3. So we're, uh, that's it for this week, though. We're going to pick back up with Feel the like. actual production of that film, and then we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of his entire, well, not his entire career, the next, like, decade of his career or so. I feel like you contradicted what I said about the Alien 3 experience, so I don't I really did, know. yeah. Well, you were lying, oh, yeah. so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were making shit up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, that's all but we he does get to work with uh, extremely attractive people. I mean, it's Gordy Weaver, so David yeah. Fincher. It's quite the stud For, in his Forrest day, Whitaker. At, yeah, Forrest Whitaker. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Don't make that face, Todd. Todd. <laughs> <laughs> That's offensive to Forrest Whitaker. Uh, sorry. 
<laughs> it's so uh, weird because Forrest Whitaker is also when I was watching Species, I was thinking of Alien. I was like, oh yeah, this is like a movie that wishes it was Alien, and then uh, Forrest Whitaker also in that movie too. Yeah, yep. original. Wow. Well, guys, that's it for this week. We will pick back up with Alien Three next week, and then we'll continue after that with uh with the rest of David Fincher's filmography. But until then, um, you guys want to tell the listeners where you can be found on the internet? Yeah, I am uh, at this is Gary Horde on all the social medias. Uh, I uh, do stuff with the National Wrestling Alliance. If you like wrestling, if you don't, you should watch it on the CW app. I was gonna say we're now on the CW. Get that app. You can. I watched uh, the season premiere. It's good stuff. Hey, thanks. Thanks for watching. And uh, Matt Cordona yeah, versus EC3 in a death match. It's cool. The ultimate match of death. Or if, if it's EC3, death. it's the, the ultimate match of death. Yep. And, That's how he uh, says it every time. <laughs> and they go all out on that match. They sure do. They, and uh, so you should check that out. Pain, and next week's going to be just as good. Uh, so, well, I don't know, I guess by the time this comes out, a couple episodes will probably already be out. Yeah. So by the time this out. comes out, episode two of NWA will already be out, but, and maybe episode three, what yeah. day, does, what days yeah. it come out? Tuesdays? Tuesdays. Yeah. Okay. So episode three will be dropping the day that this episode lands. So check yeah. out the first three episodes of NWA yeah, power on the CW. Up. You can get it on Roku, Amazon, you can get on Apple TV. You can get it on uh, your iOS or Android apps, whatever. Well, this has just become a commercial for the NWA. <laughs> hey, well, what, what's, what's the point of my existence? If not to promote it every once in a while. <laughs> that's true. That's true. How about you, Todd? Uh, if you're in the area, I run an open mic comedy night, Friday nights at Not Just Gaming in Greer, South Carolina. Also, I am working my way through the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order on my show, Computer Resume Podcast. Now in its third year, we just recorded our third anniversary episode earlier today. Uh, it's available now wherever you get your podcasts and on all the socials at Computer Resume. And I'm on uh, the socials at Mr. Todd A. Davis, Facebook, X, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D&D Beyond as long as they behave themselves. And you can find me at Justin underscore Bishop on Instagram and Letterboxd. The show is at Cinema underscore Shock. Uh, that's Instagram, X, uh, and Letterboxd now. Uh, so come follow us on Letterboxd at Cinema Shock. Uh, check out all of our episodes as well as links to our Discord and our merchandise at cinemashock.net. Like, rate, review, all that bullshit. Uh, just send this episode to all your friends who love David Fincher music videos or who love Madonna or who love um, other Paul Abdul. things. Paul Abdul. <laughs> yeah, and lots then, of Paul Abdul fans going to catch on to Cinema Shock after That's this. right, that's right. <laughs> Lots of Rick Springfield fans are are just coming our way. Uh, well, until next time, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. Johnny has the keys at night, mostly. What is that a reference to? Oh, I thought I was the only one who didn't get it. Please, <laughs> do tell. Really? No. That's Newt from the second Aliens movie. Oh, that was, I watched that so long ago. I don't yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> We're not talking about that. We're on the David Fincher. Yeah, but I didn't want to do 
something from a movie we haven't talked about yet. That's true. So I did one you did that. What if there's more than one option for Alien 3 and this was your chance? Yep, you blew it. Well, Newt, Newt's not in Alien 3. Yeah, well, That's you didn't have to pick Newt. I'm saying there's other <laughs> quotes that are in Alien 3. Uh, yeah, but we haven't talked about Alien 3 yet. We have a little fucking bit. pick for like oh. most of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could have picked a Madonna quote or freedom. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's start the whole thing over. Or I'll do a different quote. Seeing all you have to do now is take these keys and make them true. There you go. Oh my god, that was. <laughs> hey, there you go. Yeah. Just... yeah, but you didn't say Johnny. You fucked it up, Justin. Well, I mean, that was a first draft. <laughs> you could have said all Johnny has to do is take these yep. keys. Make them true somehow. There you go. Yeah. Or you guys don't even need all them. Johnny has to see is that these keys don't belong to you and they don't belong to me. Perfect. There you go. <laughs> it sounds like you guys are on board finally with Johnny. As the we have no choice at this point. <laughs> it's a thing now. It's been on a shirt for God's sake. 